Episode one of You're, You're Doing, doing it, wrong. it Wrong. <laughs> you did it wrong already. That's great. We're <laughs> off to a good start. With a twink and a whore. Oh, look at us. We're doing it. We're doing it wrong. There's no such thing. Mm, spoiler alert. Oh, wrap that's it up. The secret. We can <laughs> stop right there. We did it. Uh, okay, well, we're going to introduce ourselves today and share a little bit about why we started this podcast, uh, a little bit about who we are, and then get into some stuff about consent. Lit. Okay, let's do it. You want to start? No. <laughs> do you, you want me to start? Okay. <laughs> yeah, you please start if you're comfortable. Okay. Yeah, no problem. Um, my name is Mia Schachter. I use they, them pronouns. Um. I'm a writer, first and foremost. I'm starting to say that now. I'm sure we'll get into why, but that's like where I want to start. <laughs> um, talk to my therapist about it today. Feel good about it. Uh, I write mainly on themes of consent, relationships, sex, sexuality, gender, the body, art, creativity and the intersections of all those things. Um, I, I grew up in Los Angeles in like a TV home, an entertainment home. And uh, in 2019, I moved back to LA after 10 years in working in New York theater. Um, and I got kind of swept up into intimacy coordination after writing, starting to write a rom-com with a friend about an intimacy coordinator. And then I became kind of like the main character of a movie. Um, by the way, stop me with any questions or clarifications so that I'm not just monologuing here. If you, I was just going to say, it's, it's funny. People say art imitates life. I think life imitates art. Like, be careful what you write because you'll end oh, up yeah. doing it. Oh no, that's like, that was also not the first and not the last time that that happened. And it's, it's become clear, like just how powerful my words are I mean this is the consent wizardry I founded a consent school called consent wizardry and I named it that because the magic is so real of like naming what you want and also what starts to happen when you say no um like I, I've gotten to a point where I, re I really have to be careful what I write because like if I sometimes I, I'll even like sit down to write something and I'm like Mia if you don't want this to come true don't do it you know yeah, that the magic of saying no, like it sounds like a pithy sort of thing, but I think, especially in relationships, when we're when we're like, and that's that's mm -hmm. my line, like there's yep. actually a lot of vortexy magic there. It's kind of intense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now I think of boundaries as like um, protection spells, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I'll I repeat like a parrot. I I'll say um, there's magic and desire and what. And asking for what you want is the spell. Mm. I've written songs that are spells and like have come true. Anyway, um, yeah. So I became an intimacy coordinator after writing a movie about an intimacy coordinator that never got finished. Um, 
And then what interested me most about that training, what, well, an intimacy coordinator for anyone who doesn't know is like a stunt coordinator, but, um, for sex scenes and nudity on TV sets and film sets and, um, uh, in theater. Uh, so we're there to kind of negotiate comfort, help actors figure out what their boundaries are, make sure everyone's on the same page, make sure that like contracts are signed that address like what's going to be shown and the acts that are going to be simulated. Um, we can help choreograph. We make sure the set is closed. We do a whole bunch of other things. But so I, I got into that work and what excited me the most about it was consent. And, um, and unfortunately I discovered that in intimacy coordination, like that's actually not something that people want to spend that much time talking about. <laughs> so like as much <laughs> as it lights me up and excited me, like I was not having that like matched, you know, by many other people. So I started teaching that outside of intimacy coordination. Um, it became really clear to me that intimacy coordination wasn't going to be a full-time gig. It also didn't seem like something I even wanted to do like every single day. Um, and I knew pretty quickly that this was like content that was really important and necessary and was somehow being like I don't think on purpose, but like unintentionally gatekept in like kink communities, BDSM spaces, poly communities. Um, it just like wasn't really making its way beyond that. Do you think that's in part because people are just like uncomfortable and the general response is like, yeah, yeah, no, I got it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, yes, I think that's part of it. I also think that, um, you know how like a lot of like dare I say parents think that um like punk musicians are like angry and mad and like mean and dangerous you know and violent because they like scream on stage or whatever uh-huh, uh-huh. but then actually like you start to get to know punks and they're all like straight edge vegans and like really shy you know <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, I mean? yeah I feel like it's a little bit like that like there's these communities of people who who are actually like so good at communication and like really in touch with themselves you know i'd say by and large and like um are engaging in these activities that that onlookers with no actual awareness of like what it's really like just look at them like they're freaks and perverts and so but then of course like when you get into it it's like well yeah if you're gonna be like tying someone up or like poking someone with needles or burning them with wax or paddling them like you have to have ways to negotiate what is okay and what's not and when to stop and what's too much and like how to be really clear about that like that makes so much sense once you get into it whereas like people who aren't getting that kind of like nuanced you know uh like deeper information about this stuff they're just sort of like, wow, those people are on some like freaky shit. <laughs> I was just writing about how like, from my perspective and the populations I work with, the majority of people are kind of walking around in a, in a sort of floating head state, like very disassociated from their bodies entirely. And that BDSM specifically is this realm where like, we're so in touch with both the emotional and the sensate. Mm-hmm. And that somehow that really allows for like a better alignment of brain and body. And that shows up yeah. as having um, like specifically like a more um, 
authentic sexuality as yeah. opposed to like the floating head where it's sort of like why aren't my genitals working the way I want to and it's like well, right yeah well it's because you've been just like looking at what you see mm-hmm. on tv or re- read in magazines or mm-hmm. seen in porn and you're just kind of like oh that's what I'm supposed to do mm-hmm. yeah yeah okay so I was really interested in this material but it was not really part that much of like it it was like this kind of like track running in the back of my mind at all times like I was constantly navigating consent and boundaries and like using this language and using this practice but it wasn't something that I got to like um consciously engage other people in if that makes sense I think that'll become clear as we talk more about this stuff but like you know, that like, I can ask you how you're feeling about something and know that I'm choosing to ask you how you're feeling instead of asking you if you're okay, because that's like part of my consent practice. It's easier for you to tell me how you're feeling than it is to say, no, I'm not okay. Mm. Like I know that. So I'm utilizing that tool in my toolkit, but I'm not telling you that I'm doing it. So that was going on on TV sets, but then I started trying to figure out how I could bring this to like a wider audience and I I knew like I felt very sort of purposeful in like okay I have to make this as like widely available and accessible as possible and then in 2020 COVID hit I moved back in with my parents and after like 10 days of being like well fuck I guess I don't have a job what am I gonna do I realized I could teach consent um so I started doing that online it kind of snowballed Uh, It really took off as a business. People were like so hungry for this material um, that it afforded me like I could move out of my parents' house. I could get a dog, my lovely Tennessee. Um, You know, I was able to like really uh, have it be like the majority of the work that I do. Um, And now I've written articles about it. Here's where the writing part comes in. I, you know, my Instagram functions as something of a blog. I'm writing a book. Um, and I now also, my work has sort of taken me back to a lot of creative pursuits. I'm writing a musical. I write music with a lot of these consent principles. I've found consent to be incredibly freeing for creativity. Um, and now I, I work one-on-one with people. I teach group classes. I consult with companies. Um, I run Share the Load podcast. I run Consent Wizardry um intimacy coordinate um yeah okay that's a lot of things that I do I guess they call that a multi-hyphenate you're multi but what I get envious of when I hear you talk about your work is I'm like this all seems to fit in this container yeah yeah I feel like I'm like I have like different Tupperwares I don't see that for you though and we've we've talked about this a lot I think like you know, there was this thing that we both grew up with Mm -hmm. that's like, pick a thing, be good at that thing, and then do that thing for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And that's just not realistic for millennials. And it's um, also boring. (laughs) Um, But so I think what I've learned, my like spin on that is not like, instead of trying to get, you know, good at one thing meaning like medium it's like it's actually if the voice is clear then no matter what medium you're working in it's all the same thing yeah I I think I resonate with that in that um 
I guess I should say, my name's Risden Roberts. Mm -hmm. My pronouns are she, they. Um, I live in LA, not far from Mia. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess from that perspective, like my work has a lot to do with um, divesting from right and wrong, specifically. Mm -hmm. Fighting binaries. Yes. Specifically in the realm of um, sexuality. And so what that looks like is I'm a surrogate partner um, or an intimate partner surrogate. I work with clients and their therapists priatically to help people navigate things like dysfunction, which is a word we're kind of moving away from, or um, relational sexuality issues, is what I would Mm -hmm. say. Um, I also do additional forms of sex work that are lensed in that way too, being more like educational experiential. Um, I also am a restorative practices facilitator, restorative circles facilitator. So basically what happened was (laughs) I, uh, was a sex coach and I think, I mean, I don't know if you started referring people to me or if I was getting referrals before that, but I'm also in 12 step recovery. So what happens in 12 step is a lot of people come in when they've can I swear? Yeah. Okay. I was like, I don't know, YouTube. Uh, when people fuck up really bad. So they come in and this the desire to get sober is sort of like, well, I fucked up my life and now I have to get sober. And 12-step is really great for compulsive behavior, addictions, whatever you want to frame it as, but it's not really a restorative practice. So often people come in to get sober and do the steps, one of which is an amends, kind of thinking like, I've done my work, right? And this Mm. is something we hear a lot in cancellation is like, you need to go do the work. But what the work is, isn't very clear. Um, So circling back, I I started getting people referred to me um, who had had what I call gray area consent violations. I don't work with people who, um, where the law is, involved so like if there's an actual charge or somebody's been arrested like I can't work with them um and that has come up in my work but where there's sort of non-disclosure things happening or um harm has occurred intentionally unintentionally that's sort of where I can step in like interrelational and usually sexual harm um and in doing that uh realized that what my clients really need was an education about what consent is. So then mm-hmm. I took me as course um, and I facilitate restorative circles and practices and I help people sort of walk through and navigate with support um, the experience of being canceled. And I really view that experience. We People kind of hate the word accountability in the anti-cancel circles. But I really view it as um, an opportunity to reflect on, sounds kind of cheesy, but reflect on what leadership means and re- get really clear on people's visions and their boundaries and um, just a period of introspection to kind of like move forward. And also a lot of it has to do with conversations around harm and conflict. Um, when you say visions, what do you mean by that? I've, I've noticed that, you know, one of the things I like to say is um, it's not if, but when 
with mm-hmm. cancellation. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah, I'm like, do you have an Instagram? Okay, right. Well, <laughs> I know it's if, but when I, you know, um, and I think I've told you too. My mother always jokes. She's like, God, I want to get canceled so bad because she's just like, I want to go live on an island, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously, that's not really what the experience is like. Um, so with so what I find is that a lot of people who get canceled, the people who are referred to me, sometimes they're larger scale uh, public facing, but usually they're kind of more niche public facing figures and they have a leadership role in their field, whether that's like they're um, maybe like uh, somebody who teaches or educates people or I don't know, like has a class or something or they they speak on a subject, they might be an activist. Um so that's sort of deep in who they are. And so a lot of our work is sort of figuring out like, what is it that you really want to do? Like, what's the service about? Because I think sometimes people being public facing can get inflated as sort of grandiosity. But what I often find is that people are in those fields because there's something they're passionate about. They want to be in the conversation mm-hmm. of and they want to support and move forward. It's bigger than them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of the loss of cancellation is no longer being able to participate in the niche realm that they were in yeah Yeah. maybe it's it's often something kind of obscure like this is I don't like modernist poetry you know what I mean (laughs) and it's like I'm just thinking of something I haven't had a client in that field but um you know something a little niche where like they have a lot to offer and give Mm -hmm. um and they frankly fucked up and so we need to get clear on healing the harm they have caused and also how they want to move forward basically. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, I mean, this is sort of taking us into like our approaches, I guess, to this work, which I think is um, a good, we can start that now. Sure. Um, Yeah. I think I, I really liked what you were saying about like, you know, how do we heal and then move forward? Cause I think that's, that's like really integral to my approach to this work is like not dwelling too much on the past and I really have a deep belief that like I I I really don't believe in punishment Mm. um I think that a lot of what's missing is you know it's education it's like media literacy it's self-knowledge self-awareness um usually like feelings of worthiness, like that's so often what's going on. And I don't really think that punishment is an effective tool for change. Um, So for me in this work, it's a lot more about looking at like, well, it happened. So rather than trying to get to like the truth of the matter of what actually happened, which often is like up for debate. Um, Because I also, you know, I have like pretty deep beliefs around like perception and like shared realities. And I don't really, you know, I think that we, reality is like pretty subjective. (laughs) Um, You know, two people will tell you the same story and like the truth is somewhere in the middle there. Um, I think a lot about like the space between and that also I think, ties in with these ideas of binaries, you know, that like, if we're really kind of undoing binaries, then we're looking to undo the victim abuser binary, good, bad, right, wrong, 
man, woman, religion, science, um, yes, no, like all these things, you know, I'm like really, really interested in that space between, um, which I think is reflected also like in my identity as a non-binary trans person. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. So, so, wow. I went on kind of a little loop there. I loved it. I went Um, with you. Yeah. Oh yeah. So like looking forward, um, I think there's so much, uh, like if, if I, I really, I do believe that like, if we stopped trying to use like blame, like we could, if we can learn to like recognize the impulse to blame and then like not try to punish or get revenge to extricate blame from our sense of justice. Like if blame is not part of how you understand justice, then what are we left with? And for me, it's like, I would so much rather invest resources, whether it's time, money, energy, into how to heal and how to prevent these things from happening again. Like I would so much rather put those resources into that than towards who fucked up, how they fucked up, why they fucked up, and how to like vanish them from society. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny you were bringing up binaries and we, I remember we had this conversation about wine and how when you first learn about wine, yeah. like, there's red wine and there's white wine. And there's, once you sort of learn more about wine, it almost becomes, it's like, okay, there's all, there's these five major varietals of red and then there's these blends and then there's these regions. And then you start to learn about Italy and the, <laughs> and the literal soil that it's grown in and like what side of the mountain and how yes. much sun it gets and how much rain was there that year right 2012 great year for Napa because it rained a lot you know like right it's, it's and it's frankly it's exhausting and it's right it's, it's so much more work to learn with that level of nuance right it's like the plat the literal plasticity the brain has to like expand and grow new neurons and stuff and it's like yeah it's tiring. And so I, yeah, no, I just have, this is, I'm like, this is so exciting to me. There's so the, another, another like metaphor that I've used for that is like, I took a painting class in college mm. and, you know, it used to be like red, orange, yellow, green, blue, blue, purple. And, um, and then once I started to learn about color theory, then it was like, oh, that blue has a little more green than that blue, which has a little more purple. That shadow has a little bit of orange in it. And that shadow has a little bit of pink in it. And like when you mix them together, it does this. And all of a sudden through learning that about color theory, literally like walking out my front door, the world had more color in it. It was so much more vibrant. And I feel that way about gender. Like you can begin to see if you are willing to look all of the space in between. And it's so much more exciting. It gives you so much more um, like subtlety Mm -hmm. in your life if you can see the gradations. But you're right. It takes a lot, a lot of work. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you talk about blame and punishment, I think part of that triangle is the desire for revenge, which is like really human. I don't, I think it's unfortunately sort of innate to who we are. Yeah. And 
at the same time, we all know logically, because we've most likely been exposed to stories about this, that like, it doesn't abet the suffering. Like, if, right. you know, and yet we still crave it. And I think they're tying it into this binary thing. It's like doing a restorative process is like, it's tiring. It, it's yeah. involved. It involves nuance. Whereas opposed to being like, put that guy in the street and public publicly flog him. Mm-hmm. It's an easier place for my brain to land. Yeah. Don't, it doesn't really make me feel better. I still desire it. Right. It's this false sense of safety, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. There's two things I want to say about that. One <laughs> is that there was this study done a while ago on the brains of London cab drivers. Mm. The city of London is not on a grid. It's absolutely insane to navigate. And um, in order to be a London cab driver, at least until there was GPS, I don't know what it's like now, you had to learn the map of London, like like the back of your hand, as they say. Um, and they so they studied these guys' brains and they discovered that they had larger hippocampi in their brains that's an area of the brain um that does a lot of things but in this you know in this study they were looking at the way that growing your internal brain or map actually grows a part of your brain so i i have to imagine that there's like something that happens physiologically to your brain if we can get a neuroscientist to listen to this and help us do a study on this like what happens to the brain of someone who studies color theory or is non-binary or like, you know, someone who occupies this space between or like has worked towards finer, finer gradations of like, yeah, you know, like a sommelier being able to taste like this wine has a little bit of cherry in it. This one has a little bit of cedar but this one has a little bit of pine and this and one the, has a little tobacco the people who are like masters of wine can literally taste something and tell yeah, you i know like what year the grapes were grown and when it was it's like what like it's yeah crazy. i used to be able to drink coffee and tell you whether it was a blend or a single origin and where it was from and usually okay. even like what was in the blend um i can't really do that anymore <laughs> the second thing i wanted to say oh was that um punishment is profitable incarcerating people is profitable so there's a way that I feel like um a lot of this a lot of the way that we punish people publicly that comes that that seems to be outside of the prison industrial complex outside of cops the police force like it's I I don't see it as outside of that I see it as an internalization of that and it's because it's profitable. So like we're being told that if someone gets punished, that's like for the betterment of everybody. When really I think it's because somewhere along the way, someone's going to make some some buck a buck after uh, uh, off of that. I read this interesting thing. I think it was from this book. Um, uh, Abolish the Family, Sophie Lewis. And it's it talked. I think that's where I read it. But it, it was this idea that like. Um, People on the right are hyper individualistic. It's a lot about personal autonomy. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of the conflict is around like, don't tread on me, for example, whereas the far left, which is the circle I identify with, is very much about the collective, Mm -hmm. which is, and and somehow I think in opposition and through binarization, 
being like, well, if we're an opposite to the right, that means we all have to get along. We right. all have to be on this. We all have to have the same thinking about it. It has to be very homogenous. So if somebody steps out of that circle or does something uh, incongruous with what we've all decided is like the collective belief system, then they can't be in the group anymore. Mm-hmm. Instead of it being like, oh, this is just a group <laughs> of punks and weirdos who and Marxists who are like trying to make it work and we're human beings and like the collective is more important than the individual is like actually the takeaway and we have to make right. room for people fucking up because we're humans and all we do is fuck up all the time. Yeah, but then remarkably, it's all gotten so twisted up and backwards that the when people, when a lot of people, especially famous people, experience cancellation, it's the people on the right, the alt, the far alt-right figureheads who reach out to them saying, come over here, we'll accept you just as you are. Right. It is It is interesting because it's this idea, it's almost like they're also reacting to being policed, but in a different way. Does that make Yeah, sense? I mean, everyone thinks that everyone else is a fucking fascist. Like, that's the way the political discourse has gotten, has gone. Like, at, at this point, it's like, we're all fascists in some way or another. You know, the fascists on the left are telling us that we can't say this and we can't say that, and that you have to do... 47 minutes of like what you call leftist pillow talk leftist pillow talk you know before you can start the the class and then you have 13 minutes left in the entire class yeah it drives me nuts um or it's like the same people who are saying like you can't say crazy or insane and then they just come up with like a bajillion other words to say those things like she's unhinged or (laughs) or he's nuts or you know off their rocker and it's like okay those are like the it's just synonyms you're saying like I remember you know you can't I mean I I and I'm also like I don't use a lot of these words because of my personal choices not to use these words but like I don't I don't use the word retarded for example hmm. um but I had a roommate who like you know didn't want to use that word and so she just would start to refer to people as special needs and I was Wait. like you're just saying the exact same thing. You just are saying that you're not allowed to use this one specific word, but the intention behind the word that you're saying is the exact fucking same. Yeah. Like, how is that better? Is that better? I, are you asking me if no, that's better? No, no. <laughs> I was like, I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. I don't know, whatever. There's also some stuff in there that's like, well, why are we determining who is what? And like, there's judgment in there, right? Like you're saying that this person is like an unreliable narrator of their own experience. And if that's what you mean, you can be specific in other ways and like that. But anyway, it also makes me think just briefly, like you, um, I forget exactly how you phrase this, but it reminds me of like, uh, the disability justice movement. I remember what it was. You mentioned that sometimes like the people advocating most loudly are not actually in that population. Yes. Think about specifically in disability justice. I've had um, able-bodied people like correct language for me around like it's person with disabilities. And I'm like, I, a lot of people who are in that movement who identify as disabled say disabled. disabled. Yeah. They don't even say dis- differently able. That's a mm-hmm. thing that able-bodied people have taken on to be, to put kitty gloves on to honestly coddle other able-bodied people. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I have a, PTSD diagnosis and I'm a recovering alcoholic please just refer to me as a crazy bitch like yes yes I know I'm chronically ill and I had a fucking tapeworm after decades of undiagnosed chronic illness I 
am autistic and I have depression and anxiety. I please call me crazy. Yeah, please. I'd like you, if you oh, call me like, fucking psycho. You're the psycho lunatic insane lady. I'm like, what? Yeah. Oh, you're neurodivergent. I'm like, shut. Up. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, I am. I am technically. I know. Okay. Well, hold on. Let's back up. We were talking about our approaches and I feel like we probably shed some light on our approaches throughout that conversation, but I want to back up a little bit. And I feel like this has to do with like, I can like comb through what we just said to find seeds of the approaches. Um, one thing that I find that I feel is really important to my approach is that consent is not about avoiding things that make you uncomfortable. It's about moving through things that make you uncomfortable or even make you feel somewhat unsafe safely. Mm. So doing so with attention and care and support because we all have to do things that we don't want to do in the world all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Another piece is that I don't treat people like babies. I assume that you know yourself, which... um, also, I would say, like, has gotten me in trouble. Yeah, in various ways when, like, I've trusted someone to know what they need or I've trusted that someone is giving it to me at face value and should be taken as such. Um, and then it turns out, actually, they don't. You know, that happens to me in relationships. But that's, like, really not something that I'm willing to let go of because I I believe that part of, a big part of, autonomy is like me trusting that you know how to take care of yourself yeah like I think about in poly a lot there's sort of like I have to take people at their word yeah yeah right um and I can like support you in Mm -hmm. doing that more or more easily I can help be easier for you to speak to in those ways for you to say no to for you to ask for what you need um but like at the end of the day it really is this is really about you figuring out your desires, your boundaries, your needs, and you being able to express them. And a lot of my work obviously is like teaching people how to do that. Um, Cause it's easy to say like, just say no, or like, just <laughs> ask, but it's not, there's not a lot of information about the why or mm-hmm. how rather. Um, another big piece is that um, I don't assume, I don't presume malicious intent. So I don't assume that people show up on a TV set, let's say, like trying to fuck people over or take advantage of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really unfortunately common or like unfortunately uncommon thing mm-hmm. amongst a lot of intimacy coordinators. They have to put their capes on to rescue people. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've had the cape ready to go <laughs> for so many years, you know, and someone just finally gave them an occasion to wear it. Mm. Um, but it's not just intimacy coordinators. You know, I think it's a lot of people in, um, like, who work in consent spaces where it's like, you know, we need to handle everybody with kitty gloves and make sure that everyone is okay at all times. And, like, you simply can't do that and ultimately like that level of like constriction and um restraint and you know self-scrutiny um stifles vulnerability authenticity and creativity consent for me has been such an incredible tool for like 
loosening up the creative spigot and like allowing flow and removing friction. And so I'm so much more interested in like that, those magic properties of consent than what happens so often, which is like people come to this work and they're like, cool, all these people have done all these things to me and therefore need to get like punished or cut out of my life really so that I don't actually have to do the introspection or do the hard work of setting boundaries of moving through conflict of having difficult conversations Mm -hmm. um but you've just like wronged me and therefore fuck you and I'm done um yeah so a lot of like trust and a lot of autonomy a lot of going inward a lot of like self-consent is really a big part of my approach um you know practicing consent with yourself and I'm sure we'll talk more about that as we go mm-hmm. um yeah am I am I missing anything that you can think of that's just like a really obvious part of I'd say anti-binary anti-cancellation mm-hmm. um very much like rooted in the body you know somatic born out of my experience with chronic illness mm-hmm. um I think I don't really hear a lot of consent thinkers talk about like the mind gut connection what that has to do with consent that's like a big part of my experience with this stuff um yeah yeah um i guess my orientation is that the word we're using i said approach approach (laughs) but i'll take it my way of doing the thing um Mm -hmm. similarly i feel like there's a sort of like um, graciousness with oneself that I think is really important to consent. I think when clients come to me that what they know about consent usually is that it starts and stops with enthusiasm. So they're right. like, right. So they're like, well, it was enthusiastic. I'm like, cool. And also yeah. and what I, what I also find too, is that in a lot of um, areas where harm has occurred either inside or outside of consent, um, there's often the person is overriding their own boundaries. There's yes. This thing with so I, often. Yes. I use the yes to no spectrum a lot with my clients, your tool, um, because what I find is that people have often talked themselves into something yep. and that's where they're in danger. So a lot of it is about teaching them like to, to the somatics of like getting in touch with like where, what does your yes feel like? What does your no feel like? How do you know when you're out of, for lack of a better word, alignment or integrity with yourself? Um, and similarly, I also am very invested in, invested into vesting from, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, binaries. Mm -hmm. I, I think very few people are monsters. I think people are, and I am, uh, a baby therapist. I'm like in school for, to become a, a therapist. And I, both through that and in the, in my life, I, um, I meet very few people who are incapable of self-reflection and change. Actually, yeah. I was surprised. But before I started this work, I thought it, there, it was more people. <laughs> right. But I'm like, oh, actually, um, even people who fucked up real bad are, are capable of change, Um, which is also something we talk about in 12-step a lot. And I think my work is informed by 12-step because I, I dated this woman who uh, said this to me once. I think it was right when COVID hit. She was like, I don't know why anybody's surprised that we all got COVID. She's like, we literally, cause at the, at the end of a meeting in 12 step, you get up, you hold hands and you say a prayer <laughs> together. Cause it's a fucking mm. cult. I love it. <laughs> but it's a cult. Um, and she was like, we literally 
sit in a room next to like uh the worst people in the world like people Mm. who have like been accused of and done time for like the most heinous crimes you can think of and these are people I literally do prayers with so like I think I'm able to and I try to educate my clients about having grace that people can have done horrible things and not be bad people um I also think because of being a sex worker I meet a lot of baby sex workers like people who are new to the field they're usually women and teaching people that boundaries are not necessarily black and white they're not static you can sit in your bed and be putting on your eyelashes and be like these are my rules for myself regarding what I will and won't do with a client and when you're actually in a space with a client there are so many variables you weren't prepared for. Like mm-hmm. what is the amount of off- money being offered? Do you find this person attractive? Are you wanting to get out of here as quickly as possible? All mm-hmm. these things that inform the decision in the moment that aren't present if we just give ourselves hard and fast rules. And I really encourage people when they move into doing sex work, if that's what they choose to do, to know that like, that's how you learn your boundaries. Like yes, when you have an experience of being like, Often I find it's sort of a, that's interesting. And so I'm willing to explore something afterwards. Sometimes we might have what I call dirty pissy, dirty pussy feeling mm-hmm. where you're like, damn, I wish I didn't do that. Um, and that's how you know what your boundary is moving forward. Right. Great information you, for you. Yes, exactly. But if you don't do it, you don't know. So I think having the grace and kindness for ourselves to be like, this is how I learn. I learn my boundaries in the field. Right, right we've talked about this a lot recently that like you can regret something. You can say, I will not do that again, or I wouldn't do that again. If given Mm -hmm. the chance, you may, you know, wake up in someone's bed and go, whoops. (laughs) (laughs) Been there. Yeah. But that, that doesn't necessarily mean that anyone is to blame. And I think that that's where this like impulse to blame is really important to notice. Like it comes up when I'm driving all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, like you've, fucking whatever like if you hadn't pulled out of that parking spot while I was trying to do this and like then I wouldn't have had to da, 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 and slam on the brakes and my dog fell in the back seat it's like you know what what if it's just nobody's fault what if it's just nobody's fault what if it's just a Trader Joe's parking lot and that's a hellscape right right and I'm of course not talking about like intentional I feel like we have to clarify yes intentional like power abusive well, abuses, intentional abuses of power, one thing. Also, intentional abuses of power in the form of sexual assault. Yes. And like, you know, very serious instances of like actual rape where there was yes. like an extreme violation, um, you know. Maybe piggybacking off, off that, I just want to yeah. share that like my experience as a sex worker, I, I have learned that there's a lot of nuance in the space of people um, doing things and not knowing how to ask for things and sort of behaving in ways that are non-consensual without it being assault. Yeah. I don't you do you know what I'm saying? I'm like, this person is not in their right mind because yeah. they're extremely aroused. They're being grabby. They're asking for things that we have determined we're not doing, whatever. Right. But it's not coming from a place of, I want to control you. Right. Or I'm, it's erotic for me to override you. It's erotic to um, overpower you. It's not coming from that. It's coming more from like, I call a horny blackout. It's like, you're not, your frontal lobe is offline, my dude. Yeah. You know, just grasping. Yeah. You know, to kind of 
add to that, what you were saying about like finding your boundaries in the moment. I think there's also um, the kind of like other side of that coin, which is like learning about practicing consent by making mistakes Mm. and how like when you start talking about consent, just bringing up the word consent, a lot of people get really defensive. They feel like you're accusing them of something simply because you literally said the word consent. Um, it's, it's really bizarre. Uh, I could give examples, but I'll do that later. So what I think like a a lot of, I I think, you know, a lot of people's like neck hair stands on end when you say like a lot of consent is like learned through trial and error. Mm. Um, and I think part of the reason why that happens is because people link consent with sexual consent you know, collapse all consent into sexual consent. Whereas like most consent is taking place with yourself or internally or silently or with other people in interpersonal relationships that have nothing to do with sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's a way that, um, you know, I think this is like central to my approach. Something I left out was that Consent is not something that you can ever do perfectly. Mm. It's going to be different with every person at different times of day, in different situations, whether or not they have COVID, you know, like there's going to be all different kinds of um, variables, as you said. And also like we're beings within the variable of time, like something might be okay with me today. That's not okay with me tomorrow. Um, And no one else can read my mind and should be expected to know that I have to be able to communicate that. Um, But if they, you know, do something that ends up feeling like it's a little bit violating, um, that's information for us. It's a reminder like, oh, this is a good moment for us to check in about that or update my boundaries because I'm realizing that, you know, it's not the same in every situation or I wasn't clear or here's a new boundary. I think what you said about feels violating is really important too, because I've had experiences that were violating and felt violating and they were not, the intention of the person wasn't to violate me. And I know we talk a lot about like removing um, intentionality from harm. Yeah. We can still address harm and be like, that was fucked up. What you did was fucked up. But I think it's important to remember that it's like, it's not always, it's not always so black and white. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that's not to like detract from the experiences that myself and other people have had of like overt assault. Right. But it often is this sort of thing. And I think, yeah. Yeah. I wrote a, I wrote an article that I submitted as an op-ed to the LA times that was promptly rejected about how most consent violations are unintentional. Um, because I think there is a huge difference between someone intending to, uh, you know, knock you down on your feet versus bumping into you by accident or getting pushed themselves into you, which knocked you over, you know, intentionally running someone over with your car versus like losing control and hitting someone. Like those are different things. The impact may be the same. The result yeah. may be the same. Yeah. You know, I get misgendered by people who are trying and don't mean to disrespect who I am. And then I get misgendered by people who do, you know, and it's a very different quality. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is probably for another conversation, but the conflating the something I think a lot about in consent is like conflating the emotional experience of harm with the magnitude of harm. Meaning mm. like I can be really affected by something at like a level 10, but it doesn't actually mean that the thing that occurred is a level 10, that my yeah. might be informed by my history or some other stuff I have going on, you know? And um, I don't know. I think that's something that ha- I see a lot in cancellation is that people with a previous trauma history have an experience that was harm, but is not at the magnitude of that previous trauma. And, and this is mm-hmm. a like, situation is a safer place for them to act out the, mm. the, yeah, the emotional level of the thing that really occurred, you know, right. and, um, that's, that's bringing up what I've been talking about as like the danger of positioning yourself as a, um, thank you for telling me person mm. because Talk more about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've had the experience now enough times where like, because I've made it really clear that I will always thank you for telling me if I've caused harm or crossed a boundary that then a small handful of people have used this safe dynamic, this relatively safe dynamic to finally like speak truth to power that they haven't been felt able to because like of fear of retaliation or feel fear of like someone's anger but because I've positioned myself as the person who will always say, thank you for telling me, I get a lot of trauma like projected onto me. You're just, you're or, offering free gestalt therapy, basically. People are yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Where like the trauma in their past is so great. And this is your, what you were saying, like is not at the magnitude, but perhaps there was like a slight, there was like an infraction or there was a way that they felt uncomfortable saying no to me. I wasn't aware of that. And so I, you know, accept it. This is, this is the thing that happens most is that someone makes me an offer of some kind. Mm -hmm. I say, wow, yeah, that would be great. That's so generous of you. And then they go beyond their capacity, cross their own boundaries to give it to me and then resent me for it. And -hmm. because truly they have been seriously taken advantage of in the past and perhaps, you know, used for their, mind and their skills and their talent um in ways that have been like incredibly abusive and exploitative but they haven't felt like they could say to that person like what was going on because that person held their job in their hands or whatever you know here i am saying no matter what you say i'm gonna say thank you for telling me Mm -hmm. and then that's what happened so i'm trying to find like where are my boundaries in that so that I'm not opening up myself to being the like blank slate on which people can like project all their past trauma? Yeah, you're not the garage door that somebody can practice their tennis serve on, essentially. Exactly. Not to be a total wasp with my metaphors, but yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting, this idea of people overriding their own boundaries, which I think a lot of us have been socialized to do, especially like certain demographics and genders of people. And then the upset, because I've done that before, where um, I've gone above and beyond and then depleted myself or overpromised, overgiven, and then felt or then not felt any gratitude from them, not felt appreciated, just felt oh. like they were like, cool, mm-hmm. thanks. 
Yeah. And I, I actually had this experience recently with my mother where I re referred my sister for a job. And my mother, instead of being like, it was really sweet of you to get her this job interview, kind of like shit on me about mm -hmm. it. It wasn't like a good enough offer. <laughs> and I'm like, where's my thank you? And I'm like, well, this is actually I should know now as a 39 and a half year old woman that like, mm. I can't expect my mother to thank me for anything. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I continue, it's, it's sort of on me because I'm expecting a different result. With right, right, right. 40 years of experience. And that's why you're a crazy psycho bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do anything right. Even get her sister a job interview. Yeah, you're yeah. doing it wrong. I'm Kristen. doing it wrong. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. We're, this is going a lot longer than I was anticipating. And I think we're Oops. doing great. Are we or are we doing it wrong? No, I mean, we're probably doing it entirely wrong, but that's okay. Because <laughs> how else do you learn? Um, <laughs> But I did want to make sure that we, I mean, we talked about our approaches. We talked about who we are. I think I wanted to just give like a little peek into like why I wanted to start this podcast with you after having Share the Load for so many years now. Um, I love Share the Load. Share the Load is not over. Um, I, I found Share the Load starting to feel kind of limiting in a lot of the ways that we were talking about earlier around like feeling like I had to have this like choke hold on my own throat around my own language um because of the ways that a lot of these conversations are happening online um, I also started to feel share the load slip into, I think what I'll say it again, like what you call leftist pillow talk. Um, and I wanted to give myself permission to like speak a little more freely. Um, and then, you know, you and I forged a friendship over the last however many months and it has felt like every time we hang out, we're just kind of like continuing this large, like what I call tree conversations. Mm. Like it's like all new growth off the same tree. Like all mm. these conversations are just like growing out of each other. It's not like we're having separate conversations. They all feel like incredibly interrelated. I think that's what I'm also saying that I see in your work is that like it's all part of the same tree. Um you know, and just like every branch that you have is informed by a different part of your life, whether it's like 12 step or like transformative justice circles or um, cancellation or, you know, your one-on-one -on -one client work or your surrogate partner therapy work. Um, like it's all very much interwoven. Um, yeah. So this is a space where I'm electing to be more free with my language and with the, you know, sort of figuring things out as we go, not needing to have things so kind of like thought out before I share them, um, you know, shirking a little bit of perfectionism. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, you can, you can share like why you wanted to do this show. I think I said why I wanted to do it with you. I think, um, 
Yeah, I think that there's that when we talked about doing this, it was sort of a like consent 2.0 thing. And I think, yeah, yeah, like there's, I think, you know, on the far left, there's like an understanding of consent that's gotten really black and white and sort of like, there's also just this larger um, sort of culture around like the right way to do things and the wrong way to do things. And I mm -hmm. think I love the title of this because we're talking about being messy and like doing it wrong and figuring it out as we go and like giving ourselves the grace to fuck up. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I think just bringing in a little bit more of that nuance around consent around human beings, not being good or bad. Most yeah. of the time. Most yeah. of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think the title you're doing it wrong, like, also speaks to the way that a lot of people feel a lot of resistance towards getting, seeking out consent education because they're afraid they're going to be told you're doing it wrong. Um, that alone can be really scary. I think there's a lot of fear mongering in consent education. That's like, if you don't get this kind of education, then you're going to rape someone. Do you want to rape someone? Like that's, that's how it goes. That's how it goes. I mean, it's also very gendered, you know, like yeah. men have to learn to take a no and women need to learn to say no. And it's like, well, that's a great way to get women never to reflect on the ways that they are violating other people's consent and boundaries. And holy shit, Mia, I, you know how I feel. There's nothing more dangerous than a cisgendered woman, um, especially a white mm -hmm. one. Yeah. I hear a lot, a lot of my clients are male and I just watch a lot of a lot of coercion and a lot of anger. Yeah. Yeah. Of, yeah. It's interesting. From Yeah. And like weaponizing the gender binary, like mm -hmm. you're supposed to be like this, like, are you a real man? Like that right. How, kind of stuff. if you don't, wanna if you don't want to fuck me. Yeah. If you don't want to sleep with me, then there's something wrong with you. Right. It's really fascinating. Or if yeah. your dick doesn't work. Right. right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, I guess in terms of you're doing it wrong, um, I don't know. I guess we can, we can wrap it up there and just say like, we're going to continue with more episodes. Each episode will probably like start at least with like a theme or like something that has happened. And then we'll kind of go deeper into that area. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. Let's stop there. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs>